Isaiah 26 and verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You know the words that really jump off the page at me when I read Isaiah 26? It's the two words, perfect peace. I believe in the inspired Word of God. And I believe that in this moment, at this time, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit didn't just inspire Isaiah to write the word peace. It's perfect peace. Complete, total, unhindered, perfect peace. As we move now to the sixth sermon of the Besides Still Water sermon series, the foundation has been laid. The core concepts about God's nature and attributes have been established. We have seen why we should be able to have peace. We have seen why God can tell us to fear nothing, be anxious of nothing, trust in all things, and have peace ruling our hearts. But now, it is time to make these concepts become a tangible reality in our lives, something that so few Christians ever truly make happen. Listen in today as Pastor Joplin preaches on the common barriers that prevent your heart from experiencing peace. As I move on to the sixth sermon in this sermon series this morning, um, the foundation has been laid. And I just, I can't go back and, and preach everything else I have over the last five weeks that really help make this morning's message more applicable. And so this morning, I encourage you, if you have not had the ability to hear the previous five messages that really set us up for today, I encourage you to, to go to our website or our app or any podcast and just search for us and listen to those five messages. Um, but what I want to do now that we've, we've talked about the grace of God, we've talked about the mercy of God, we've talked about the redeeming love of God, we have clearly seen over and over and over again for five weeks now that it is God's design, it is God's desire, and it is God's will that His sons and daughters live by peace, that we have a heart that is ruled by peace. And what we've done is we've taken a look at the character of God. So if you see that passage that we just read, that God keeps those in perfect peace whose minds are stayed upon God who trust in Him. And so we've spent the last month looking at God and learning about the attributes of God that should give our hearts a very real reason to have peace. And this morning, what I want to do is start my, the process of tying all this together. And what I want to do today, very specifically, is, is talk about the barriers that keep us from making peace a tangible reality. Because there is no doubt a significant chunk of people right now that you've been following this sermon series when we very first started and uh, a little over a month and a half ago now when we very first started, you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait to get through this. I need peace. I want a heart that's ruled by peace. I want to be free from anxiety. I want to be free from worry and doubt. And we've, we've made a lot of ground in the last month, but there's probably a part of you that's thinking it still feels like it's out there. Like I just can't quite reach it. And what I want to talk about this morning are the barriers that often keep us from grabbing a hold of that peace, if you will. And so we're going to look at five common barriers that prevent your heart from experiencing peace. Number one this morning, the number one reason that you may not be experiencing peace is quite simply, you're not right with God. 
I want to get that out of the way right away this morning. If you're not right with God, you're never going to experience the peace of God. That's the bottom line. All too often, I think we're trying to convince uh, folks that they should have peace when really they should have no peace at all. I mean, if you're not right with God, you shouldn't have peace. You certainly don't have peace with God. And if you don't have peace with God and you're not right with God, there's nothing else that should really give you peace in this world. God's promises, this is so important to understand, that God's promises are to God's sons and daughters. They're not to everybody. Now, God loves the whole world, and Jesus died for the whole world. But the promises of God that we have been studying and that we have been paying attention to this last five weeks as we've been having this emphasis on learning to be a Christian whose heart is ruled by peace, these promises of God are to His sons and daughters. And so the most important question that you've got to get settled this morning is, are you saved? I think too often we try to convince someone that they ought to have comfort and they ought to have peace when in reality they shouldn't. You have to be born again. That's what the Bible teaches us. You must be born again. John chapter 3. Jesus told that to Nicodemus. You have got to be born again. You have got to have a relationship with God. You have got to repent of your sins and turn to Him and follow Him. And here's the reality of it. If you don't, you will never truly find peace. It's just not going to happen. You'll search the world over. You'll look for some peace from here and find out, well, it doesn't work. You'll look for peace here and you'll find out it doesn't work. No matter how far you search, no matter how far you go, no matter how much you taste, no matter what you do, you will find that whatever you drink, it turns like poison and bitterness in your mouth. Whatever you eat, it ends up feeling like gravel in your mouth. There is nothing that will satisfy you. If you remember when we very first started this sermon series, nothing will satisfy you until you understand the purpose for which you were created. And if you remember our sermon series, you were created by God and for God. And so until that part is right, everything else that went, that followed, all of the reasons that we can have peace, they are fleeting. So number one common barrier to not being, uh, experiencing peace is, is not being right with God. And I'm also going to say, nor will the Christian who plays with sin ever find peace. It is possible to be saved. And I want to be cautious how I say this, because a lot of people make excuses for a continual lifestyle of sin. Make no mistake about it, the Bible says that those who practice sin are sons of the devil. That's 1 John. That's not Joplin's interpretation of how you should understand that verse. That's an actual quote. Those who practice sin are sons of the devil. So you can't practice sin as a way of life and be a Christian. You can deceive yourself into thinking you're a Christian, but according to God, you're not. That said, it is possible for we as Christians to have strongholds. You can call them battles, maybe. And certain things that we just, uh, a lot of times, justify. It might be a wrong attitude towards a person. It might be, you know, something that God's been dealing with your heart for quite some time. And you know good and well God's been dealing with your heart, but you just aren't going to listen. And you will find as a Christian, when you are not following the Lord wholeheartedly and sincerely, that you have no peace. You're not, if you will, right with God. I'm not saying you're not saved, 
But there's something between you and God, and you know it. There's some stuff that needs to change. There's some things you need to be doing. There's some things you ought not be doing. And until you get those things right, you're not going to have peace. William Grinnell said it this way, When the Christian boldly walks in sinful choices and thinks he can console his sorrowful conscience with his knowledge of God's love, mercy, and grace... He finds the door of God's comforting promises slammed shut in his face. I found that interesting that William Grinnell speaks of the comforting of God's mercy, love, and grace. Those are the three things that we studied the last three weeks. And as we saw in the last three weeks, those things should give us a sense of real comfort and peace. But he points out when you're walking in bold sin, and you know it, you can try all day long to comfort that conscience of yours and say, well, I know God loves me. I know that God's merciful. I know that God's gracious. But you'll find that it's like the door of peace poof, slammed in your face. There is a certain, there's a part where we have to remain repentant. I think it's important that the Christian understands that repentance is a lifestyle. It's a lifelong commitment. It's not a one-time deal. Hey, come on up to the altar and repent. It is a continual mindset that as God reveals to me the things in my life that I need to improve upon, that I need to change, that I need to stop, that I need to turn from, that I need to be doing, that my heart is willing to be molded and directed by God. And when we stop doing that, when we think of some one-time act, and instead we stop having this heart that's pliable in the hands of God, and you start doing it your own way and kind of doing living life how you want to live it, you'll find it don't matter how many sermon series you listen to on peace. It don't matter how many times you try to tell yourself over and over and over again that I should have peace and God loves me and God has mercy. You'll find that there's this barrier between you truly having a heart, as Colossians 3 speaks of, that is ruled by peace. Number two, second barrier this morning to peace is that you don't know the truth. You don't know a lot of the things that we spoke about in the previous weeks concerning what peace looks like, why we should have peace. Look what Hosea chapter 4 and verse 6 says. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. I really want to look at the first portion of that, but for anybody that's confused, let me tell you what's happening here. In Hosea, uh, God is uh, chastising the people of Israel, and more specifically, if you'll go back and read those five verses leading up to it, He's chastising their spiritual leaders who have refused to preach the truth. And this is really a rebuke to the spiritual leaders that God is telling the spiritual leaders that God's people are perishing for lack of knowledge because they haven't been taught the truth. And here's the bottom line, that simple statement, when we don't know the truth, we perish. We're destroyed. I don't want to spend a long time harping on this but I don't know that I can overemphasize the need to know the Word of God. All right, I'm, I, I promise you this, I'm trying to help a group of people this morning. I've spent the last six weeks of my life studying peace and figuring out how to help people have peace. And so I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. But brothers and sisters, we perish for lack of knowledge. The average Christian's 
uh, understanding of their faith is about 10% what the Bible teaches, 10% what they've heard at church, 50% what they've heard on radio, their favorite three or four songs, and then 30% what they just decide they believe about God. I often get asked questions like, so what does the Well Worship Center believe about this thing? What does the Well Worship Center believe about this thing or this lifestyle or this action or this deed? My answer is always the same. And it's, it's just crazy, this era of time we've come to, like we have a right to believe anything we want on these things. But we're not up here writing our own Bible and deciding, here's what we shall believe on these matters. It's already written. We believe what it says. We know what it says. We teach what it says. Now, here's the point, though. If you don't know the truth, as Jesus spoke in John chapter 8, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. If you don't know the truth, you're never really going to be free. And I cannot challenge you enough to fall in love with the Word of God, to fall in love with the God of the Word. To be in the Word of God, to be hearing it taught, to be hearing it preached, to be, you know, belong to as many Bible studies as you can. Showing up and hearing me preach once a week isn't going to get her done. My people perish for lack of knowledge. This is one of the primary reasons that people don't have peace. Even Christians, they don't know. They don't know the truth. And I could literally preach everything I did the last five weeks to reference what I mean, but I say truth. Some people think that God's up there with this great big hammer just waiting to come down on every mistake that you make. That's not true. In fact, when you study from the uh, opening of Genesis to the end of Revelation, you find that judgment is God's last resort. Now, he's a God of justice and He's a God of judgment and it will come. But it's always last. He's first a God of patience and grace and long-suffering. In fact, it's the primary reason He hasn't returned yet. God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish. That's just one brief, quick example I could point to on the, 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 the good side of things where I can show you, if you don't know that and you think that God's just waiting for you to fail, you're going to live your life on tax, and every little time you fail, you're going to think that you know, something's the whole world's wrong. I've seen Christians who are absolutely convinced that things are sins that aren't. And then they live in complete condemnation their whole life because they think they're just, this is a sin, this is a sin. And it's not. I've seen Christians, for example, this is one example, I've got to move, I could spend all morning here. I've seen Christians, for example, that have been remarried. They're terrified they're going to go to hell based upon a very um, wrong misunderstanding of one passage where Jesus is dealing with remarriage. They really believe it. And they're just convinced, I can never be saved. I'm remarried. Well, that's insane. Stupid on every level, honestly, but uh, e even if, let's just go the great big even if it was a sin. What is it, the unforgivable sin? Is this the second unforgivable sin we never heard about? I mean, here's my point, though. My people, they're destroyed for lack of knowledge, and I could do this all morning long. 
When you don't know the truth about the Word of God, you don't know how God views a certain thing, you don't know what God actually teaches, you will find that you are easy bait for the devil. It doesn't take him a whole lot to get in there, get you confused, ruin your mindset, ruin, and just absolutely make everything about your relationship with God feel like it's failing to you. You don't understand God's mercy. You don't understand God's grace. You don't understand God's redeeming love. You don't understand God's ability to finish what he started. Philippians 1.6, we looked at this last week, right? And all of a sudden, you find I'm a Christian, and I know that I believe in God, but I just constantly live in this sense of I'm a failure, and God could never love me, and my life is terrible. And who wants to keep going in that? You know what most, most, most people do that end up there? They just say they hang it up. And most people that have done it, they'll tell you when they leave the doors and they never come back in, they'll tell you, it's not that I don't believe in God anymore, I just I can't do this. If I'm going to be a failure, I might as well just be great at it. And the devil's won. God said, my people perish because of lack of knowledge. They don't know the truth. Look what Jesus said about it in Matthew 22, verse 29. Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. You want to really know the power of God in your life to produce the peace that surpasses understanding? You're going to have to know the Scriptures. You're going to have to rightly understand them and be able to apply them to your life. Number three this morning, the third barrier that keeps us from experiencing the peace we've been talking about this last month is that you might have false expectations for your Christian experience. This especially happens when our um, theology, half of it comes from songs on the radio. Now, I'm not knocking songs on the radio. I'm not. I'm just telling you, you can't get a full understanding of the Scriptures in a three-minute radio version of a song that in order to ever get airtime has to have a quick little verse, a a chorus that they sing the same thing three times and then the song's over. I'm not knocking songs. That's just the way it works. But if that's where your theology comes from and that's all you're left with, I mean, it's like trying to understand calculus without ever being allowed to go beyond first grade math. And so songs have their place. I'm not up here making fun of songs. But it is a fact that many people who are Christians, a lot of their theology is based upon these songs. And you know, who wants to put a song on the radio about uh, life's going to be hard, life's going to be tough, it's a great big battle, and uh, you know, the world's going to turn on you, and you're going to be hated by uh, people if you truly follow Jesus, and those who live godly are going to suffer persecution. Who wants to hear that song? Right? And so it doesn't get airtime. It's just, I'm just telling you the way it really is. It's not wrong or right. I'm just telling you it's the way it is. A song, even if someone writes a song and it's good and it's accurate, it's just no one wants to hear that. I want positive, uplifting music, and that's great. But here's the point. We end up with a false expectation about what our Christian experience is supposed to look like. There are untold multitudes, I would go so far to say millions here in America especially, that think that if they come to Jesus, that really what that means is now that you know life's going to be even better. Like they're, they're waiting to decide, do I really need to go to Jesus you know, because my marriage is about to fall apart and so God's going to fix this? Or maybe I'm in a financial disaster and you know God's going to fix that for me? Or maybe my life's just not good and my life doesn't look like I want my life to be and so I'm going to come to Jesus so He can help fix her up and make it look like I want it to look and you find out that that's not actually what it's ever about. Let me tell you why we come to Jesus. Because we are sinners, guilty before a holy God, 
who will give an account for our wicked sins and ultimately split hell wide open, never to get out if we don't get saved. That's the primary reason. That's, that's what you need Jesus for more than all else. Not because your car's about to break down. Not because you're not satisfied with the current life you have and you think that God's got some power to finally make it look like you want. Those are the wrong motives. Those are actually selfish motives in why we would come to Christ. Years ago, in the Southern Baptist denomination, they did a study. This is late 90s. I, will, uh, I would go so far to say nothing's probably changed. I just want to acknowledge the study's 20 years old. But years ago, they did a study of 300 thousand salvations in the Southern Baptist denomination. They found that one year later of the 300,000 salvations, only 12% of them were still attending church. 88 out of 100 people whose lives were supposedly radically changed by the power of God, not even going to church a year later. I would argue that most of them had a false expectation to start with on what they were coming for. They didn't know. And it was kind of like, look, let's just pray this prayer, trust everything's going to be better, and then they find out life's hard. You find out that some of the people that hated you still hate you. You find out that some of the issues that have been plaguing you for years from bad choices, they don't just disappear because... God has forgiven you of your sins with God. They did, it's not like there's this, God doesn't just wave a magic wand over everybody's life if they're willing to say a quick little prayer. And you'll find that false expectations of what your faith should look like and what you should be able to expect in your relationship with God, false expectations will steal your peace and again cause you to go the wrong direction. Look what uh, the Apostle Paul said about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Now, before I read it, you need to understand that Paul is really addressing the church in Corinth, which had a lot of similar uh, problems that we have in American Christianity. The church in Corinth was kind of high and lifted up. This is why Paul had to tell them, you know, the great chapter of, of love of 1 Corinthians 13, but this is why Paul basically had to say, you all are like this noisy gong that's just annoying to everybody. Because what you do, you don't do it with love, you don't do it with compassion, you all think that you're better than everybody else, and you kind of see this whole faith thing is about having power and control and influence. And several times Paul mocks, he actually mocks the church in Corinth and says things like, oh, you guys are so great and so rich, <laughs> well, we're the dung of the earth, you guys are so powerful and kings, if we could just be like you, and he's mocking them, and in this passage we're about to see, Paul is really rebuking them and teaching them what true Christianity looks like. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verses 8 through 11, and then I'm going to skip to 16 through 18. We are afflicted in every way. This is the offer this morning. But we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but we are not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. 
so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporary. They pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Hey, that's very different. That's very different than the message that's going out on what you could expect with your Christianity. And you need to know that life is still hard. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world where pain and sorrow and wars and death and sickness and hatred, it's going to abound. And Jesus told his disciples that we are going to be in the world. We're just not of the world. So as long as we're in it, until the Lord returns, until things change, as long as we're in it, we're going to suffer from time to time, brothers and sisters. We're going to have sorrow from time to time. And nowhere did Christ promise that we wouldn't. You can see how having a false expectation of what your faith should entail and what you should get out of your faith, it can actually lead to a place of stealing your peace. But if you know ahead of time, again, my people perish for lack of knowledge, if you know ahead of time, that this is going to be hard sometimes. God hasn't promised to shield you from every pain. God hasn't promised that you're never going to be done wrong. God hasn't promised that if you serve Him, nobody's ever going to stab you in the back. Nobody's ever going to hurt you. Nobody's ever going to steal from you. Everybody's going to get along. God hasn't promised that the church is always going to just be a place where everybody gets along like we should and treats each other like we should. God hasn't promised any of that, but I'll tell you what He has promised, that He will save your soul from a devil's hell if you'll turn your life to Him. He's promised that if you serve Him and you follow Him, His grace is sufficient to see through. He's promised that His mercy is sufficient for you, whatever the need, no matter what you've done, that when you need mercy, God has mercy. You can go boldly before His throne in your time of need if you're a son or daughter of His. He has promised that His grace will see you through. He has promised that He loves you and that He has the the, the power of redeeming love, the, the desire to go to you, to find you, to search you out. When we see these things, we understand God's promise of peace is not contingent upon earthly circumstances. It actually has nothing to do with them. God's not interested in controlling this circumstance so you can be happy and this circumstance so you can be happy. It's something far deeper, which is why the Bible calls it this peace that surpasses understanding. Talk about properly understanding the Word of God, properly applying it, having false expectations with your Christian experience. One of the most Um, uh, probably misquoted verse, definitely top five in the last 50 years in this country anyways, is Philippians 4.13. Most of you probably know it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, most of us have heard that probably applied to sports more than anything else. I mean, this is the sports verse. You know, I might be five foot eight, but by golly, I can do all things through Christ and I can dunk a basketball. You ought to read all of Philippians chapter four. 
Because here's what Paul says, and just for sake of time, he's going to tell you what he says. Go read it yourself. I'm not quoting Scripture. I'm just telling you what he says here. Paul says, uh, I know what it is to be naked and clothed. And I know what it means to have absolutely no food to eat, to go without. I know what it means to be imprisoned and falsely accused and beaten. Nonetheless, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's that verse in context. You want to know how we somehow apply it to a 5'8 guy being able to dunk a basketball? I'll tell you, Hosea 4.6, my people perish for lack of knowledge. That's how. It's just we don't know. And it's like we, we, we... And this is why this is important this morning, brothers and sisters. I go back to what I said earlier. I'm trying to help you understand that peace is very real. You can trust the Word of God with your life. And when God tells you that you can be anxious about nothing, you can be anxious about nothing. When God tells you there is a peace that surpasses understanding, there is a peace that surpasses understanding. And in Colossians 3, when it tells us that our heart can be ruled by peace, you better believe your heart can be ruled by peace. But these are some of the barriers that keep it from happening. It doesn't just happen automatically. And we've got to understand that these things can be great hindrances to us obtaining or, or actually feeling, uh, grabbing a hold of, making peace tangible in our lives. We've got a false expectation. Number four, another major barrier to experiencing peace, you desire something other than God. You desire something other than God. Before putting up uh, Matthew 5, 6, I want to share with you another quick verse that I didn't have up on the screen. Um, when Abraham went and uh, brought back Lot, the Bible tells us that a king named Melchizedek shows up and that they have this meeting and that um, Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything he has. He basically tithes to Melchizedek. This is Genesis chapter 14. And then in Genesis chapter 15, you know, what has happened is, is Melchizedek's kind of showed up and said, hey, I'm going to give you everything, Abraham. And Abraham says, no, I don't want anything. If you want to water, you know, provide my men water and, and a meal, fair enough. But I'm not taking your stuff. And here's what he said. I don't want to take it because I don't want everyone else to look around and say, oh, Abraham's doing well because Melchizedek blessed him. Abraham said, no, my lot comes from God. And I don't want anybody to ever say anything different. And so he turned down a reward in order to stay faithful to God. Then God shows up and God blesses Abraham as a result of that obedience in Genesis chapter 15. And here's what God basically says to Abraham. These words, I am your exceedingly great reward. It's the first time we see the word reward used in Scripture. And here's what God says. Not I'm going to give you, not the stuff that I will give you will be a greater reward than what Melchizedek was going to give you. Listen to the words, brothers and sisters. In the Bible, uh, a lot of times we have what we'll call the law of first mention. And that means that the first time God mentions a thing in the Bible, generally speaking, 
any time that it's mentioned going forward, it finds its, its uh, you know, the heartbeat of it in what was originally said. It's the law of first mention. The first time we hear of God rewarding anybody, here's what he says, I am the reward. Now, you will find that your, one of the barriers to peace in your Christianity is when you are looking for a reward other than God. Another way of saying it is, is when you look to God as a source for rewards, plural. And God says, no, you, you, there's not a thing on earth I can give you that's better than him. God said, there's not anything I could reward you with that would be better than me. You have to understand this is the prize. I think there is a need for us as God's sons and daughters to be overwhelmed again with the truth that the God of heaven and earth wants a relationship with us. That we can go boldly before His throne. That we can approach God. What could be more significant? What car could God possibly give you that would be more significant than Him? What earthly relationship could God possibly repair or possibly bring into your life that could be more significant than a relationship with Him. But often if we are expecting or seeking or desiring something other than God, we just see God as a means to what we really want. You'll find it's a, very, it's a barrier to peace. Look what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. You want to be satisfied? You want to be full? You want to be filled? you got to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And righteousness is a word that simply deals with right standing with God. That's really what it means. That's what the word in and of itself means. It's a right standing with God. That's what righteousness is. You want to be filled? You want to quit spending the rest of your life like you're empty and you're missing something and you need something and you're going to run to this thing and try this and you're going to run to that thing and try that and you're just going to finally feel like the, you know, there's this big emptiness inside? If you want that to stop, you're going to have to hunger for right standing with Him. And here's the promise. Those people shall be filled. He is the prize, brothers and sisters. He is the reward. This is an incredible thought that Sinners like us. God would love us so much to send His Son to die for us that, number one, He could righteously declare us cleansed. He could righteously say, no, His debt has been paid. The cost for all the wrong, for all the sin, it's been paid in full, that He would love us enough to do that. And then desire to save us, cause us to be born again, engraft us into His family that we might be in a relationship with Him. I, it's mind-blowing to me. No wonder in Revelation, Jesus, one of the, the uh, complaints that he had against the church was that it had left his first love. You'll find that when you leave your first love, when church becomes about things you do, number of attendances that you can make in the month, number of meetings you've got to be at, number of things you've got to do, number of services you've got to have, number of missions you've got to you know, uh, homes that you've got to help, people you've got to clothe, mouths that you've got to feed. When it becomes about those things, you'll find that somewhere there's a disconnect and the peace is just not there. But when you get back to spending time with God, when you show up simply to meet with God, 
when you recognize, you know what, we're coming here this morning to learn. The Word of God ought to be taught when we gather. But more significant than just learning, the main reason we show up is to come together and come before God in hopes that He might speak, that He might move on our hearts, that He might save the lost, that He might encourage the discouraged, and we come with the sense of awareness, the sense of reality that we are appearing before God, and that ultimately we desire nothing more than Him. All too often our focus is wrong, especially in a country of people who have become spoiled. I'm going to take a two-minute rabbit trail, and I'm going to come back to my sermon. Two-minute rabbit trail. I became convinced recently, sometime in the last year, that we have crossed the line of being blessed in America, and I hesitate to use that word, blessed, because I don't know that we are. We're actually spoiled. We have too much that we don't even need God. Most Americans, their commitment to God is more of an American thing. It's what we do. It's just part of being a good American, good person. You want to be a Christian. You need to say you have a church. When someone asks you if you go to church, you need to be able to say, yeah, I go to that one. And it's more like it's just part of something we do because when we really look at our living, when we look at our thinking, when we look at what rules this heart from day to day, most people that even show up at church on a Sunday morning have very little desire for God at all. We've been spoiled. And I want to finish that rabbit trail with, I want to challenge you guys to think about the things in your life that are spoiling your relationship with God. It's so hard once you actually have it to let go of it. But is it spoiling your relationship with God? Because if He's the prize, and it's Him that we are to desire, and it's this desiring Him, and knowing Him, and having Him, and being in His Word, and knowing truth. Listen, these things take time. They just do. It's not going to happen Listen to me for an hour a week. It's not going to happen because you listen to Christian radio on the way to work, brothers and sisters. It takes a, it takes a commitment to know God and to be in the Word and to have conversation, meaningful Christian conversation with other Christians about what God's doing in your life. And it takes prayer and people you can pray for and people that can pray for you. So what are the things in your life that just quite frankly you're too busy for that? Good things. What are the things in your life that keep you from God's best for you? Often our focus is wrong. It's all about building this little life of ours. When you really study New Testament Christianity, they live with an absolute view of heaven. This is, this is their ultimate prize. It's not only God in this life, but we're going to get to see Him face to face. We're, we're citizens of a heavenly city. This world is not our home. They sincerely thought of themselves as pilgrims that were just here for a little bit of time until we get home. And they live with that mindset. So they didn't have this attitude of constantly trying to build their little kingdoms and get more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. It was kind of like, all this stuff doesn't matter. We just need to use what we have to win as many people as we can because our king is coming. Brothers and sisters, when you live with that mindset, 
you will find that all of a sudden the power of things loses its grip on your life. The power of desiring more loses its grip on your life because your focus isn't on things and it's not on obtaining more. Your focus is on knowing your God and really just believing and living for that time when you get to see Him face to face and hopefully hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. The final barrier I want to discuss this morning that keeps us from experiencing peace, really taking a hold of it, is number five, you aren't controlling your thoughts. You have to control your thoughts. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. I want to look at some strong words. The weapons of our warfare. Now here is the irony. This is the other side of the coin of peace. It's a war. You want to have peace? It's a war. There's the good news. We have the strength to win the war, and God's fully equipped us to win the war. But if you think peace is just going to come because you sit around and just hope that it shows up, it's just not going to happen. You've got to take your thoughts captive. This was a really healthy verse for me to memorize. There was a period in my life where I really shamed myself for thoughts. The interesting thing about thoughts is you can't generally make thoughts happen. You don't sit around and think, I'm going to think a bad thought in three minutes. No, it just happens. Sometimes there's little triggers. Man, I've been places before there wasn't a trigger at all. And it was just like this stupid, fleshly thought comes to my mind. And I'm kind of like, where'd that come from? I have no idea, but it's there. Now, when I was a young Christian... I thought, I mean, I just lived with a lot of shame for thoughts. I, I just thought, wow, you know, Jesus wouldn't think that. But he wouldn't. He probably wouldn't. But he was tempted in every way that we were, and yet without sin. And he was a man. We don't actually know the thoughts he had to take captive. That said, this verse helped me to recognize the command isn't, don't think the thought. That wasn't the command. It's as if the Bible automatically acknowledges thoughts are going to come, folks. Thoughts of selfishness. Thoughts of wanting to do it your way. Thoughts of wanting to be in despair. Thoughts of wanting to hang her up and quit. The thoughts are going to come. It's like it just acknowledges for that. And it gave me the sense of like, okay, I'm human. But here's the command. you got to take those thoughts captive. And I want you to think about that. I mean, it's a strong term, like taking somebody captive. It doesn't say you've got to plead with your thoughts and try to convince them they're wrong. It doesn't say be soft with them. I mean, you've got to take them captive. That's like you've got to lay your hands on that enemy and say, you aren't going to have power in my life. We're going to take you and we're going to lock you up over here where you belong because I believe God. I believe the Word of God. I'm a child of God. I don't think that way. I don't behave that way. I don't act on those thoughts. And we take those thoughts captive. 
And you'll find that if you don't, you've got this huge barrier in your life between you and peace. There's a lot of us that think, well, I'll quit acting this way if God, you'll take away the thoughts. It's just not how it works. God's not into the business of brainwashing. God's not in the business of making a bunch of robots that only do what they do because they don't have a choice. He brainwashed them to think this way. That's not God. God wants true, committed, sincere followers who believe His Word and who believe God is who God says He is and who believe it's worth the battle. Followers who recognize there's going to be times that this old nasty flesh of mine, it doesn't want to obey God. It doesn't want to go the way of God. It thinks things it shouldn't think. And what is the command that I take those thoughts captive and bring them under the control of Christ? Isaiah 26 and verse 3. Last verse this morning is the same verse we started with. You keep him in perfect peace. His mind is stayed on you because He trusts in you. You know the words that really jump off the page at me when I read Isaiah 26? It's the two words, perfect peace. I believe in the inspired Word of God. And I believe that in this moment, at this time, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit didn't just inspire Isaiah to write the word peace perfect peace, complete, total, unhindered, perfect peace. God keeps us in perfect peace when our mind is stayed upon Him. This morning, what are the barriers in your life that are keeping you from truly experiencing peace with God?